the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You know, it's interesting. Israel could do all this stuff right, but if they started going down the path of idolatry, it wouldn't matter. Even in these laws, God says, I'm still after your heart. I don't just want the form of it. I want you. You know, when Christianity has gained more freedom in a society, it's always been its most tempting time. Because there's something funky about us that we, we struggle with an unhealthy longing for the world's approval. We do. It's an unhealthy longing. Just to know you and, be known. and to adopt the world's ways to appeal to a greater crowd. We must always be on our guard against this. God's way is best whether it attracts a crowd or not. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God had faithfully taken the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt and provided for them through the desert wilderness. He was revealing His ways to the children of Israel. God gave them His moral law and the civil law by which they would live by. We continue looking at the civil law as we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now we get to laws concerning civil disputes. And in these nine verses, it's nine different principles here. Number one, tell the truth. You shall not raise a false report. In other words, a report that has no foundation. The internet would have been illegal in Israeli society. You shall not raise a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous or an unjust witness. So tell the truth. Always tell the truth. Don't mingle the truth. Don't twist the truth. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Give a true report. Next, don't give in to peer pressure when it concerns civil disputes. You shall not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shall you speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Don't give testimony in a legal dispute. That's what it means to speak in a cause. Don't give testimony in a legal dispute for which the purpose is to twist justice because of a mob mentality. The pressure of majority should never outweigh right and wrong. Never. Be wary of locking arms with the crowd. Just because they're a crowd doesn't guarantee they're moving in the right direction. There are many times in my life where I've seen the crowd going one way. There's times I've seen the church going one way and I've had to go, that's not the direction we're supposed to be headed. We need to turn around. We need to go against this flow. We need to go in a direction that God wants us to go. Next in verse 3, you should not give favoritism to the poor. Don't show favoritism. Neither shall you countenance a poor man in his cause. Countenance means to show favoritism. In other words, right is right and wrong is wrong. Other factors, while sympathetic, should never pervert this. We should never look at someone because they're in a disadvantaged situation and think it's okay for them to do something wrong. In James 2, the godly pastor there urges us to never show partiality in how we treat one another in the body of Christ. Don't show favoritism. In verses 4 and 5, it has something else that's, that's hard, but it's, it's true. Don't treat a court opponent like an enemy. Just because you have a legal dispute with them, don't treat them like an enemy. Now, if you meet your enemy's ox, or enemy there means your opponent, your legal opponent. If you meet your legal opponent's ox or his donkey going astray, 
you shall surely bring it back to him again. In other words, if you're kind of sitting out front and you're, you're, in, a, you're in a legal dispute with your neighbor and you see his donkey start wandering off, you know, don't be like, yeah, serves him right, you know. Hope that thing drops in a ditch. That'll cost him some money. Don't do that, he says. Go get him and bring him back in. And if you see the donkey of him that hates you lying under his burden, the idea there is that he's, he's weighed down. You know, he, he, he's basically, he's lying under his burden. He can't carry it. He says, well, you, he says, and you would forbear, you refuse to help him. You shall surely go help with him. If you see him over there and feel like, need some help? I'll go call somebody. <laughs> no, he says, no, help him out. Go help the man out. Basically, God says, get off your high horse and help your neighbor. Don't be a bozo. Because here's the thing. Don't you think that would have been a bad witness? What if the neighbor next to him was a Midianite? And he comes by and he's like, hey, man, he looks like he needs some help. Yeah, but that dude's suing me for this. I forget it. Uh, you're just like the rest of us, right? And then, so God's desire is that he, they, they would not see that, but there would be a light and a testimony that even when you got a legal dispute with somebody, that you would show kindness to him. You know, when the world sees Christians who refuse to get along, it doesn't get Christianity. It thinks you're just, we're just like everybody else, and rightfully so. Now, some of that's impossible to fix. We cannot lock arms with those who claim Christianity but reject truth. We can't do that. But there are things that we can disagree on and still lock arms I have great fellowship with other guys that we look at certain things in the scripture and we go, I, we definitely disagree on this issue. But we still have great fellowship. I am not a reformed individual. I'm reading a book right now by a woman who was a former lesbian who got saved and, and it's a beautiful testimony. She's very reformed and that comes out in her book. I'm loving this thing because there's so many things that, that we do agree upon that are most important. It doesn't matter that we disagree upon that. Who cares? When we hurt one another, forgiveness should reign. Jesus in John 13, 35 said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Why? By the love that you have one for another, right? Next, verse six, don't take advantage of the disadvantage. He says, now you're not to show favoritism to the poor, but you shall also not rest the judgment of your poor in his cause. Don't stretch or bend justice for the poor man in his cause. In the same way that a poor man shouldn't be shown favoritism, he shouldn't be looked down on. Truth and justice should reign supreme, regardless of socioeconomic status. Number seven, or verse seven, don't, don't twist truth. Keep you from a false matter, a word of deception, a misleading statement. And the innocent and the righteous, don't slay them, for I will not justify the wicked. The court system might let a guilty man go free, but God won't. And aren't you looking forward to the day when there's no more corrupt judges? I am. Or no more injustice? Or how about no more mass murders? I'm looking forward to that day. And you know, this explains why the cross is necessary because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Next, don't take gifts as a leader. Verse eight, and you shall take no gift. Now, this is not the word for bribe. That's obviously wrong. This refers to something that shows one's favor toward you. Don't take a gift, he says, for the gift blinds the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. In other words, if you're giving testimony in court or you're judging a case, he says it's a bad idea to take presents from the people involved. It will color your thinking no matter how hard you try. I remember I sat on a, on a jury once and we had one lawyer and this, whether he was new or not, I don't know. But he was very rigid, very, you know, just a very official in how he did things. Not a whole lot of charisma to him. The other guy, lawyer, you could tell this guy was experienced. He had a cool looking tie on. It was like an out of color tie. And he went up and he, you know, yucked it up with the, uh, you know, the judge. You know, he actually brought him one day, brought him a tie, you know, and stuff. And I thought, 
oh, I already know how this is falling out no matter what we decide here because this guy's way more likable than the other dude, you know? And what happens is, is if you're in a situation like that, no matter how hard you try, it is hard to not have your thinking colored. And so he says, listen, if you're giving testimony in court or you're judging a case, don't take any gifts from anybody. Just tell them and say, listen, you want to get me a present? You want to celebrate my birthday? Do it after this is all done so I can do this with a clear head. Verse 9, the last one, don't treat a foreigner differently. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, a foreigner, for you know the heart of a stranger, seeing that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The word oppress here, again, specifically is in regards to legal matters. Foreigners were to receive fair and just trials in Israel as equal as an Israeli would. You know what? Israel should have above all people understood this. See, Egypt had treated them so unjustly for all those years. And that's why we should be the most merciful people on the earth, because we've received mercy. We know what it's like to be astray from God. We know what it's like to be lost. And so when we see someone else who's in that situation, it should break our hearts. You know, of all people, Christians who don't belong to this world, the Bible says this world is in our home. We should understand the plight of someone who's out of place, someone who's a foreigner in our land, because this isn't our home either. Verse 10, we get to laws governing work days. It says here, And six years shall you sow your land, and you shall gather the fruits thereof. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie still, that the poor of your people may eat. What they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner shall you also deal with your vineyard and with your olive yard. So here we find the law of the sabbatical year. We'll find out more about that as we get into later parts of Exodus and Leviticus. But six years they were supposed to work, and then everybody gets a seventh year off. How many, how many people in favor of that? I am totally cool with that. Uh, unfortunately, that's not going to work in our community. But the idea was in particular, was for the land. The seventh year, the land needed to rest. Otherwise, you overworked the land and it was not productive. And God wanted them to take a year where they trusted him for their finances, where they just rested in him to be their provider. Also, notice here, the provision is for the poor of the land to eat. Do you know that Israel had a welfare system? I'm always amazed. I don't think the welfare system the way we do it in our country is good at all. I think it's unproductive. I think it's wasteful. It's like we can't ever have a a reasonable conversation about anything. I see people on the other side, and they're like, welfare is horrible. The poor should work. Well, yes, of course they should, but are you offering them a job? Hold on a second. There was a welfare program for those who were disadvantaged. And what it was is you actually supply all your income for the year and let them have it or let the animals have it, whatever. Let the land lay fallow, and then the poor of the field, they can eat whatever grows, and the animals eat whatever's left. And you deal that way with your vineyard and your oliveyard as well. And so, again, just not a greedy spirit, not a covetous spirit, but a generous spirit. In addition to that, we had the law concerning the Sabbath. Day, verse 12. Six days shall you do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, but not just you. Your donkey gets a day off, your ox gets a day off, your son of your handmaid gets a day off, the foreigner gets a day off, that you all may be refreshed. All these things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of your mouth. The word there, refresh, means to catch your breath. Remember what Jesus said? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing, not a trial. And when, when you see some folks today, you know, even within the church, trying to keep the Sabbath, you ask yourself the question, this doesn't sound very restful at all. We're supposed to chill. You know, you want to really honor the Sabbath? Then you get a hammock and you sit in it all day. <laughs> That's what the Sabbath is. You don't worry about work. You don't worry about bills. You don't worry about none of that. And you just worship the Lord and remember that he's on the throne and he's your provider. 
That's what really the Sabbath was about. And he says, make sure, and not only you, but everybody, everybody that worked for you, all your animals, everybody got the day off. It's supposed to be a day of just refreshing to catch your breath so you go right back to the work week again with energy. And God says, in everything you do, everything I've told you to do here, you be circumspect, you be on your guard, and you make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of your mouth. You know, it's interesting, Israel could do all this stuff right, but if they started going down the path of idolatry, it wouldn't matter. Even in these laws, God says, I'm still after your heart. I don't just want the form of it. I want you. So stay away from idolatry. Now, verse 14, we get to the laws governing holidays. Three times shall you keep a feast unto me in the year. They actually kept seven feasts. Jews today keep nine feasts because there's two extra biblical feasts that they keep. Uh, They're not extra biblical in the sense that they're not found in the Bible. They're extra biblical in the sense that they were not commanded by God per se. Seven feasts, but they were all centered around three times of the year. You shall keep, verse 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was what we would, when we would celebrate Passover. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days, as I commanded you, in the time appointed of the month of Beeb, for in it you came out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. So unleavened bread included the Passover, so the Lord is saying, when you come to celebrate this feast, don't forget you're supposed to come and bring a lamb, the Passover lamb as well. That's why he says don't come empty. Verse 16, also the feast of harvest, that would be the Pentecost feast, then the first fruits of their labors, that would be the feast of tabernacles, which, I'm sorry, no, it's the same thing. The feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, that would be tabernacles, which is in the end of the year when you have gathered in your labors out of the field. You had three feasts on the front end. You had Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. The first fruits were just, it was not your first fruits. It was nationally, they would celebrate a feast just to celebrate God's provision of the harvest before it happened. Then you would wait 50 days and you have Pentecost. That's what Pentecost means, 50 days later. That feast was all by itself. That was the feast of first fruits. That's when you would come and bring your first fruits to the Lord. Then you would have much later in our September, October time, you had Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, so Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And that would celebrate the end of the harvest and it had many other things that went with it as well. So three times of the year, verse 17, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You had to come wherever the tabernacle was. That's where you had to come. You shall, and he says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Remember, we talked about this when we went through through the Exodus, that leaven was a type of corruption and sin. It was a symbol of it. So they were to offer their bread to the Lord as unleavened. The idea is that symbolizing their lives were not to be given over to sin. You should offer the blood of your sacri- my sacrifice with leavened bread. Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The fat was always the best part. Now, I didn't grow up that way. My dad, he's not here tonight, so I can make fun of him. He loved the grizzle. Like, we'd have steak and then you'd have like the fatty part on the end of the steak. And he just, I mean, he would love it. He'd smack his lips. I, did, I just wanted to vomit every time I saw it. Because that stuff, I would gag if it got in my mouth. It just felt funky. And I was like, oh, get it out. Well, in Jewish culture, my dad is partially Jewish. Maybe that's why. In Jewish, Jewish culture, the fat was the best. In fact, the best part of the sheep was the tail because it was all fat. They would barbecue it and it would pop and snap and everything because it was all fatty. And then they would just go right at it. I am glad my wife does not make that. But the idea was, is the fat was the best part. And the best part was to be given to the Lord. So what is the Lord saying here? 
Everything was to be given to him in its entirety. That was to be symbolized by us giving him our best. And God still wants us to give him our best. For he says in verse 19, the first or literally the best of your first fruits of your land shall you bring unto the house of the Lord your God. Giving to the Lord, it costs us something. It does. Whether you're offering your time, you're offering your service to the Lord, you're offering your, you bringing your money to the Lord, you're bringing a, you know, you bring your tithes, your offerings here. It does cost you something, you know, but, but God's worth it, right? He's worth our best. So, And then there's another little verse that's in here and it just seems so out of place. You shall not boil a kid in his mother's milk. Now, I want to go on the record just to start off by saying that's just wrong, all right? Like there's something twisted about that. Hey, let's boil it in his mother's milk. <laughs> I was one of those kids, like when all the other kids were pulling tails off lizards, I was crying. So I love animals. And so if you did that, shame on you. You brought me to tears. This odd law, though, just thrown in here. Remember, it's given in accordance with the offering of the first fruits. Your first fruits included not just your crops, but your animals, too. Now, there was a pagan fertility ritual that would boil an animal's firstborn in its own milk. And they would believe that if you did that, you offered the firstborn unto your pagan god, that that animal would give you lots more other animals. It would birth lots more other animals. That's probably not proper English, but... The reason this is here is because he's talking about the offerings. God did not want them to be confused by his command to bring their firstborn, to think it was some crazy fertility pagan ritual. He wanted them to understand clearly, no, I want you the firstborn of the animals because everything belongs to me and I want you to acknowledge that from the start. Not so you can have some crazy idea that you're going to get a bunch more animals, okay? Does that make sense now why that's there? I bring this up because the rabbis interpreted this even more weirdly than it sounds. Since no one could know if a dairy product served alongside meat came from a mother and her offspring, they concluded this law meant you couldn't eat dairy and meat together. Therefore, no cheeseburgers if you're Jewish. Ever. When trying to understand the Bible, context is everything. This is not a dietary law. It's grouped with the offering laws. Therefore, it is okay to have a cheeseburger if you're Jewish. Verse 20. Laws governing treaties or treatment of other nations. Behold, the Lord says, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. That's interesting because we have a few angels who are named in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. Michael, El is the name of God. Gabriel, El is the name of God as well. So both of those angels have the name of God in their name. However, Israel was never called to obey angels. Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, is often titled the angel of Jehovah or the angel of the Lord. His name means Jehovah is salvation, and that is God's more proper name. It is most likely Jesus is being referred to here. In fact, in the New Testament, we see that when Paul refers to the rock that brought them water, he says that that rock was Christ. So Jesus is the one that he's referring to here. Now, they didn't see him and they didn't know him. He was in his pre-incarnate glory. So it was in the cloud, a fire and pillar of cloud, you know, the smoky cloud by day and the fire by night. So Jesus was the one leading them. And this is interesting because he says, beware of him, obey his voice, don't provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Now, what did the father say when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was glorified? This is my beloved son, Hear ye him. Listen to what he says. The same message to Israel. The same exact message. If they would, the nation would be blessed. Verse 22. 
But if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto your enemies and an adversary unto your adversaries. For mine angel shall go before you, and he shall bring you unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So the Lord says here, if you would listen to him, then you'll be blessed. But if not, you'll be judged. Sadly, they did not listen when he came. And so God judged Israel. Well, verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them, and quite or completely break down their images. And you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in the land. The number of your days I will fulfill. And I will send my fear before you and will destroy all the people to whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs unto you. They'll flee, they'll run. And I love this part. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. That almost sounds like a movie, like where all of a sudden you're fighting, running alongside, and you see bees, you know, and the bees buzzing beside you, and it gives you the wink, and you're like, all right, we got this, you know? We got, we got hornets on our side, you know? Maybe I'm the only guy who thought that. <laughs> what, are we, what are we having to fear when we have the one who controls hornets on our side? And more seriously, maybe you'll say, I haven't seen those hornets lately, though, Will. True. But then I guess that means your difficulties are part of his plan for your life since he's not sending hornets to rescue you. Instead of fearing, trust and obey in the midst of your difficulties. Because here's the reality. If God needs to get you out of a bind, he has every resource available to do so. Even the buzz and bees. He says here in verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. I'm not going to make it easy. Lest the land become desolate, overrun basically, and the beast of the field multiplies against you. But little by little will I drive them out from before you until you be increased and then you can inherit the land. And I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. For I, that's uh, referring actually the river there is Euphrates. Israel never saw those boundaries. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you to sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare, a trap unto you. You know, when Christianity has gained more freedom in a society, it's always been its most tempting time. Because there's something funky about us that we, we struggle with an unhealthy longing for the world's approval. We do. It's an unhealthy longing. And to adopt the world's ways to appeal to a greater crowd. We must always be on our guard against this. God's way is best whether it attracts a crowd or not. And so the Lord says, listen, drive them out. Don't make any deals with them because if you do, I promise you, they will ensnare your hearts. And there are some folks that we have to be very careful with as we're trying to reach out to them. You know, be careful. You know, missionary dating, not a good idea because it's more likely they're gonna draw your heart away from the Lord than it is you're gonna draw them to the Lord. And the same thing can be said about how far we go in our friendships with people who don't know the Lord. If, if you're looking at a situation where there's no common ground in the sense that you, you have dialogue and they respect you and you respect them, even though you disagree on Christ or disagree on how to live life, if there's no sense of, of mutual respect in that, you have to be very careful where you're going to go with that person. I have unbelievers that I know that I can sit down and we can, we can have dinner and we can talk and hang out and we're fine. And then there's other folks who I think to myself, probably not the best idea to hang out with them too much because they can be a snare or a trap unto you. 
That brings us to the end of the civil laws of Israel, their Bill of Rights. So we'll get to chapter 24, which is a really cool chapter because they're going to ratify the covenant together and we're going to see the Lord come down in glory once again. So will you join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward to close us out tonight? Lord, we thank you for your word and, and Lord, we read stuff that just seems insane, you know, putting people to death and, and you know, not boiling this and not doing that. And, and yet, Lord, we know that you were... These were civil laws to govern Israeli society, to keep their society healthy. And so we understand that that doesn't apply to us in that sense, but we see your heart in this. Well, that you call us to purity. You call us to be gracious and kind to those who are disadvantaged. Lord, you you call us to, in civil disputes, to be honest, Lord, to not show favoritism. Lord, you call us in the way that we worship you, Lord, to do it according to your, your commands and not just to do it however we want. And then, Lord, as as we live our lives, to be fully yielded to you, to give you our very best, and to follow you because you're our angel in the same way you're our leader, Lord. You're the captain of our salvation, as we read in our scripture reading today. So we give our lives to you, Lord, and we say, lead us. We will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. We don't live by the civil law given to the children of Israel, but God desires us to do right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. All these laws pointed to God's heart towards mankind. We should have a heart that follows God's lead in loving one another and caring for the less fortunate or oppressed. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel, Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.